Welcome to episode three of the Next World Podcast. My name is Rod Nixon, your host, and I'm completely stoked to be talking world champion, legendary and iconic surfer, motivational speaker, and author Sean Thompson. This podcast is going to be a bit uh, of a departure from our last two. Instead of talking the politics of the sand and surf, we are going to explore how someone can have their lives impacted and in turn impact others through love of that special place where the ocean meets the land. We're going to explore Sean's life and experiences in, in that special place where inspiration can happen, the joy can be overwhelming, and life tragedies can be healed. Sean, I can't thank you enough for you speaking with me today and taking time out of your busy life to talk some story. Thank you so much. No, it's great to be on the show, Rob, and thanks for all your tireless work for Surf Rider Foundation, an organization that is very, very dear uh, to my heart. So it's great to be on the show. Brought to you by Dune Doctors of Pensacola, Florida, Dune Restoration Specialists. Find them at www.dunedoctors.com. So, Sean, um, obviously you're very well known for your surfing career. Um, you're one of my heroes. In fact, I think the first time we met was at a Surfrider Foundation board meeting. I was a little starstruck, but the first thing I did was make sure I could sit next to you and talk to you the entire meeting. Um, and it was awesome. You were a very good and great human being in general and a great surfer that I've actually had the opportunity to see out in the water personally. And uh, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. And it's been a pleasure knowing you, for sure. Um, so, Sean, uh, give us a little brief history of your start as a surfer. I mean, where are you from? What drew you to the ocean and the waves? And uh, what got you into surfing originally? Well, I grew up in a place called Durban in South Africa, a long, long way from here. Uh, I started surfing in the 60s. My father uh, was a champion swimmer in his youth, loved the ocean. He had this passion for um, surfing and body surfing and life-saving and being in the water. His whole life he spent on the beach. Uh, he, his dream was to compete in the Olympic Games. And then uh, he was really badly attacked by a shark while he was surfing. It's one of the first recorded incidents of a shark attack on a surfer. And that was in, uh, in 1946 in South Africa. But he never lost his great love for the ocean. And certainly uh, he imparted it onto me. And my mom loved the ocean as well. She came from the island of Malta. It was very heavily bombed during the Second World War. It was like the most heavily bombed place in the history of the world. She, she endured 3,400 air raids and ultimately was evacuated to, to South Africa. And she told me, um, you know, when she saw the the Indian Ocean for the first time, she knew that that was where she wanted to live. She said to me when she saw the sea, she, she gave me this statement. She said, I've never felt as free as when I've been near the sea. So I, both of my, my parents loved the sea. So I suppose I've got uh, a love for the sea in my genetic makeup. And I started surfing uh, as a young boy because our family was always at the beach. And I started body surfing. And then I surfed on these little rubber mats we called surfer planes and then eventually graduated to, to a little belly board that was four foot six. And, you know, once I caught my first wave and stood up for the first time, you know, we all of us as surfers experienced that one moment when, wow, life is different. You have a completely different perspective on your life and, and where you're going and where you are at that point in time. That's that moment that captures you forever. And uh, for some people, it's, it's a real defining moment. And for me, it was. And I just wanted to always paddle back out and 
capture that moment again. So I became very um, passionate about my surfing and loved to compete. Surfing uh, and competition was very much in its infancy back then in the longboard era, but uh, I loved to compete. I like to say I was an instant success. I came third in my very first event. There was only three of us in the event, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to say I was an instant success. Yeah, three out of three. Uh, but I loved competition. Um, I loved uh, pushing myself, uh, being with my mates in the water, uh, trying to be the best I could be. My father loved me competing. And more than that, he just loved me surfing and he loved seeing me progress and advance. And ultimately, he went on and he bought the biggest surfboard manufacturer in South Africa when I was 12 years old, which was a pretty cool thing for your dad to do. Uh, he'd retired at a very young age. He had a, he had a beach buggy and he used to pick my brother and I and cousin up from school every day and take us down the beach. He'd only pick us up when the surf was good. Otherwise, we'd have to catch the bus home <laughs> or walk home. So <laughs> he was very, you know, a very stoked guy and, and, and he could see I loved surfing and made sure that I had everything I needed to, to be successful. But also, he was a very purpose-driven individual and he could see that surfing was a great vehicle to empower young people. It was a great way for young people to get out in the fresh air, to test themselves against the ocean, to become better human beings. So he really was a big promoter of, of amateur surfing and professional surfing. He, he created the first pro contest in the world, which is still running. It's celebrated 50 years this year, the longest running event in the world. It was first called the Durban 500, then the Gunston 500, and now it's called the Belido Bay Pro. So, I mean, I owe a lot to my dad and certainly I owe a lot uh, to my mom as well to have that wonderful love for surfing imparted onto me at such a young age. Wow. Uh, that's uh, quite the background. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, that, that's <laughs> a friend of mine just got me on a surfboard. That's, that's awesome. Your, your background. Wow. That's amazing. Um, I, I, so you grew up surfing and you mentioned the competition and, and that eventually drew you to, to uh, Hawaii and your, uh, well, your, your exposure to, to the rest of the surfing world, I, I, I would believe. Um, my, my generation of surfers, we, we grew up with the momentum generation, you know, Kelly Slater, Shane Dorian, Rob Machado, uh, those guys. And, but they wouldn't be able to have done what they've done without your generation, which I've commonly started calling the breaking down the door generation, um, which was the, the group of guys that you were with in Hawaii in the, in the 70s, uh, Rather Bartholomew, Mark Richards, Ian Collins, Peter Townsend, and, and many more people that would go on to become surfing legends. Um, can you expand on, on your experience when you reached Hawaii in the 70s and, and, and what it was like to be to be an outsider uh, in a very uh, in, in an area that that was very uh, leery of outsiders. Well, there have been many generations in surfing that have all built on the previous generation. Certainly, there was an amazing generation before me, and an amazing generation before that generation. You know, when I grew up, the surfers I, I looked up to were people like um, you know David Nueva. Um, Nat Young, uh, Richard Chu, uh, Paul Strau, 
uh, these amazing surfers. And then the next generation um, was uh, Reno Abalera and uh, Jerry Lopez, Eddie Aikar, um, uh, Sammy Hawk, uh, Barry Kanai Pooney, you know, this were, and Jeff Hackman, of course. The, this was a generation right before my generation. And I was lucky in that I'd lived through you know, and competed against a number of these surfers from many different uh, generations. So I went to Hawaii for the first time in 1969. It was my dream always to go to Hawaii. Um, I, had, I had photos all over the house of Hawaii. I had a photo pipeline right above my bed. And you know, I knew that one day I would go to surf uh, in Hawaii. So I loved Hawaii. My father loved Hawaii as well. When he was recuperating from his shark attack uh, and needed surgery on his hand, uh, his father sent him to San Francisco, and after arm surgery, he went to recuperate in Hawaii. He was most probably one of the first South Africans ever to visit Hawaii in the uh, in the 40s, and met the whole Kahanamoku family. And Duke Kahanamoku had been his hero when he was a young a young swimmer because Duke was such an amazing swimmer. So there was this connectivity between our family uh, and Hawaii that went back a long way. And and then in in 1969, for my bar, my bar mitzvah present, when when a Jewish boy comes of age, my father took me to Hawaii. That was my present. My father and my stepmom. We went off and spent six weeks in Hawaii. And Hawaii was a universe away from South Africa back then, and we stayed at Makaha. And you know, I rode some of the biggest surf of my life. It was uh, the legendary winter of '69, and you know, I was out there at Makaha when the surf was 25, 30 feet. However big you, you want to call it. Um, so, you know, Hawaii was part of my blood, and I started uh, going there at a very young age. So I got confidence in big surf at, at a very young age. And then because along with that, I would come back to South Africa with that confidence. I started winning most of the events in South Africa when I, when I was young, and I would consequently get invitations to compete in these events in Hawaii just as professionalism was starting to come into Surfing. So every year, uh, I was 14 in 1969, and from then on, every single year, I would go to Hawaii, I'd get invitations. I mean, I was, I was spending winters in Hawaii when I was 15 years old, just with with friends. You know, it was when I think of my mom and dad letting me loose into that big world to surf the biggest waves in the world at, at 15 years old. I go, wow, these parents. Me being a parent now, wow, <laughs> my mom and dad were, were quite incredible. But I am. Um, I fell in love with Hawaii. I fell in love with the culture, uh, the people, the surfers. Uh, these surfers were, were, were like heroic to me. Barry Kanaipuni and Reno Abalera, um, Jeff Hackman. They were like heroes. They were, they were larger than life. And all I wanted to do was, was to be a, a great surfer like them. So I hit it really hard in Hawaii. I mean, I really pushed it. And then um, in the mid-70s, this group of young Australians, uh, we all coalesced together. You know, we all had this ambition of wanting to be the best guys in the water and be the best surfers on the planet. And in those days, there was no such thing as a professional surfing circuit. There was isolated events around the world. But for us, the ultimate was to win in Hawaii, to win an event in Hawaii, the Dukanamoka event or the Smirnoff Pro or the Kuovo Classic or the Hang 10. These were all the big pro events uh, of the day. That was the ultimate, to win one of these pro events. And then also to be recognized by the media as the hottest 
surfer at sunset, the hottest surfer at Haleiwa, the hottest surfer at Pipeline, the hottest surfer at Rocky Point, at Backdoor, and off the wall. So, you know, we were all of us was very driven. And um, while it wasn't a group effort, because we certainly weren't like a team, we all collectively came on the scene at the same time. And because we had this great drive and ambition and, and loved surfing and had this sort of pure soulful experience with surfing and also could see that there was a potential to create a professional sport out of it without in any way interfering with the sublime soulful experience, it all happened together. So we were sort of perceived as, as these you know, red hot individuals, but also as this group, as this movement in much the same way as there was a movement before us and then after us there was a movement with Tom Curran, Tom Carroll, Martin Potter, and then there was a movement with with the momentum generation and, and, and you know, there's a movement today with the Brazilian storm. You know, there are these movements that really define surfing at that moment. Young guys putting it on the line, surfing better than anyone else and, and changing the sport just just for the love of it. Well, I will say one thing about your style of surfing, Sean. It's, it's, uh, I know there's been a couple surfers that have had the, the nickname of Mr. Smooth, but uh, watching you surf in the water is, is some of the smoothest, uh, most radical maneuvers I've, I've seen. Uh, and style is, is, is going through the roof with your surfing. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, you, uh, want to, you know, as a surfer, you, you want to be stylish. And when I say style, I don't mean an artificial way of holding your hands or holding your body. Your style must be this intrinsic reflection of who you are as a person. Your style, in many ways, is your personality. It's your identity. Your style is your ethos. Your style is your, is your character. Uh, so at that time, we all had very unique, we all had very individual styles. You know, Mark Richards had his own beautiful style and Rabbit Bartholomew had his own style, and Ian Cairns had his own style, and Peter Townend had his own style, just the same way as the, the, the surfers before us, Matt Young, Barry Kanaipuni, Jerry Lopez, they all had had unique uh, styles. So style is really important. I think power is really important. The carve is really important. You know, surfing is sort of in three, in three uh, um, silos. You have the carve, you know, how you do those maneuvers, the carving maneuvers. Then you have tube riding, and then you have aerial maneuvers, which was never really part of it. But style, rhythm, and flow links all of that together, links the carve together, links the tube together, links the aerial um, maneuvers together. So style is not how you hold your body. Style is who you are as a person. Um. Talking about that era before we move on to our next segment. Um, so at, at some, some point, uh, Rabbit wrote an article for Surfer Magazine that kind of upset a lot of people and really threw y'all all into one group. This is true. Uh, um, <laughs> um, is it, uh, my question is this, and I've, I've obviously seen the documentary Breaking Down the Door, and, and uh, I believe we've talked about this, but... Uh, it, it seems like you're the one that uh, is credited with basically saving Rabbit and a lot of other guys' asses from uh, from being uh, 
really messed up in uh, North Shore after uh, Eddie Akau came out and, and tried to smooth things over with everybody. Yeah, well, I think it was, um, you know, Rabbit wrote this article, and I actually thought it was a great article. I thought it was a very respectful article. But it really clearly identified what you have to do in order to be successful, not just in Hawaii, but but as a metaphor for success and business, for success in life, you've got to bust down the door. No one's going to open that door for you and let the barbarians come in and take over. You know, you've got to, you've got to bust down that, uh, that door. Um, and Rabbit was being very respectful but sometimes reality is in is in is in how something is perceived so some people perceived it as as being disrespectful which it wasn't uh, also rabbit uh, while he's one of my closest friends and I have the greatest amount of, of respect for him he was quite energetic in the water you know he wanted to catch a lot of waves and and and, ha- and had had a particular beef with uh, Barry Kanapuni in the surf in Australia. And he shouted at Barry in the heat of competition. And, um, you know, that sort of exacerbated the, the situation. There was perception there that Rabbit had disrespected the Hawaiian god, uh, Barry Kanapuni. And while Barry never really, uh, you know, Barry never never did anything about it, um, you know, there was, there was sort of the word was out that Rabbit had disrespected him. So, yes, there was some turbulent years um, and then a gangster group, uh, you know, got hold of this drama and used it to sort of further their own ends of, of control. So it became very sticky for, for all of us. I mean, all of us copped it. Rabbit got his teeth punched out. I got, you know, hit. I got smacked. A guy tried to hit me with a bottle. I mean, I went and, I went and bought a 12-gauge shotgun, pump-action, semi-auto. I mean, I'd been in the military. Uh, with 10, 10 shells in it, and I wasn't going to leave the island. I had so many death threats and people telling me they would kill me if I didn't leave. But, but I, I had to stick it out. Rabbit stuck it out. Ian Can stuck it out. Uh, PT stuck it out. We all stuck it out. We all copped it. I mean, MR was the only one of us that that never copped it. But, you know, sometimes that's the price that you have to pay. And I think for all of us, there was a realization that sometimes you have to be very careful in um, what you say, yes, you have to be always truthful and honest, but sometimes you have to be perhaps a little bit more um, delicate um, and that some people can perceive your words the wrong way. And, you know, words have great power. And we've seen it in what's happening in the political discord in the United States today, that words have tremendous power. Words have power to create a positive wave and words have power to, to create a negative way. So um, I, I think it was a, a learning experience uh, for all of us, but we all ultimately stayed. Peace was declared numerous times. Um, and I think today, when we look back, it was a great story, a lot of drama there. And, and, and I was very, um, I was very honored to be able to make that movie with my, with my director, Jeremy. God. We, we made Bust Out the Door. Uh, and it's a 10-year anniversary of that meeting, which really chronicles what, what happened during that period, the drama, the highlights and the lowlights of, of what we had to go through as young people. But we, um, we you know, looking back now, it was, uh, we were tested in fire. You know, we were in, in the ring with the bulls. We were in literally hand-to-hand combat. It made us better than we were 
And yes, at times it was unpleasant, but that's the reality that uh, that we lived through. How did it feel to uh, win the world championship in 1977? Is that the year correct? 1977, right? Correct. Yes, it was so long ago. I mean, it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, yeah. It was a very satisfying to me. It was the first year of the professional surfing circuit. So in February of that year, this whole group of professional surfers from all over the world gathered at a place called Burley Heads. And now we had this professional tour in front of us. For the first time we had, they called it man-on-man competition. That was two-man heats. For the first time we had a 10-point decimal system. And for the first time we had a circuit of all these events all over the world that would ultimately culminate in Hawaii. <clears throat> and, and, our, and our first world champion would be one. Yes, Peter Townend won the world champion in, uh, championship in 1976. It was a little bit different. It was declared retrospectively. So when we got to Hawaii right at the end of the year, Fred Henry said, oh, we're going to have a world title. We're going to count all these points. And it, it, it wasn't like the circuit, but it was so exciting for all of us at the time, not, not to take away anything from Peter Townend's great achievement, but it, it was this first year of the circuit. So it was so exciting. And then to win it uh, was just an amazing experience for me. My father was was really excited. You know, he, he, uh, he loved sport. He loved me to do well. But he was very um, accepting when I lost. He never blamed me. He would never let me dwell on a defeat. He had a very simple philosophy about uh, competition, that competition is black and white, that there's no gray areas in competition, that when a judge lays down a score, that score is laid down in stone and no amount of crying or shouting or abusive behavior is going to change that score. That score is locked. He would say to me, when you win, win like a gentleman. And when you lose, and you're going to lose often, lose like a man. He had that sort of colonial philosophy that you have to lose. When you lose, you man up. You don't cry or out over a defeat. And yes, certainly sometimes I was absolutely you know, devastated after a close defeat when you put everything you have into it. But I would go and shake the winner's hand and move on. That's the way it is. And you know, if I talk to young people about competition, I say, that's it, man. Win like a gentleman, respect your opponent, and lose like a man. And when you lose, you go over, you shake the hand of the victor and put it behind you, and you move on towards the next wave and the next um, event. So it was very simple. Competition was very simple in my mind. Wow. Uh, your your father and my father sound uh, very much alike. Uh, they probably would have gotten along very well. <laughs> Um, that's 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 awesome. Um, okay, I'd like to move on to, uh, to, to talk a little story. Um, we've heard your background, which I think gave us a lot about your motivation for what we're going to talk about now uh, uh, in the future of this, of this cast. But um, I've had the opportunity to hear you do this in the past through uh, serving on the Surf Fighter Board of Directors together. Um, I'd like to squeeze a few out of you here right now, and, and we'll trade. We'll trade story here. Um, one is funny, and the other one's inspiration to me, um, and very personal to you, I believe. I, oh, I know it is for sure. But um, we'll start with uh, sharks. How about that? Sounds good. <laughs> um, I've got uh, you know a few years ago, I was I was surfing and uh, down here, and uh, a lot of bull sharks in the water, a lot of bait shouldn't have been in the water. A lot of us out and. Uh, 
so much bait in the water. Actually, we're getting hit in the face with uh, fish hitting us and slapping us and stuff like that. And I'm paddling it after wave, and this this uh, this uh, smaller kid next to me, uh, whose father I knew very well and trusted me to take him out there, uh, is paddling into a wave, and this gray shadow comes up behind him, and he stands up, and his little face lights up, and he takes off on this wave, and I thought he was just, oh, I just got this great wave, he goes, great, and he, he finishes off the wave, kicks out, paddles back out to me, and he's like, hey, Rob, Rob, did you see that, the dolphin kid? I was like, dude, that wasn't a dolphin, man, we need to go back in right now. <laughs> and uh, his, uh, his father wasn't too too happy with me after that. I was like, he was like, you should have taken him out a lot earlier than that. I was like, you're at the beach, you could have seen what was going on out there. But, uh, but you have one that doesn't necessarily involve a shark, um, but it's the one I call it the one eye story. The uh, oh, okay. spotting in, uh, in in South Africa. Uh, can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yes, it's it's a um, a story that that happened a, a few years ago. So I was very frightened of sharks during uh, my career, based on what happened to my father, and also. The area that I grew up used to have many shark attacks uh, on the east coast of, of KwaZulu-Natal. Very warm water, subtropical. The water never drops below 75 degrees. You have rivers in summertime that release a lot of fresh water, and the water becomes very browny and discolored. And that's where the Zambezi shark loves to live. And the Zambezi is the most deadly shark in South Africa, way more deadly than the Great White. Counts for about 90% of the attacks. So it's almost like a bull shark on steroids. They grow up to about 12 feet, very, very aggressive. Um, so, you know, I was always wary of the Zambezis. And, you know, the Australians, of course, they knew that I was frightened of sharks. I remember uh, competing in an event there. It was called the Surf About, like one of the biggest events in the world. And I'm out in the semifinals and waiting for, waiting for a wave up against an Australian. And, of course, the Jaws theme comes over the PA system. <laughs> It was so funny. I just thought I was just trying to put me off my game, but I, th I thought it was funny. So I had this, you know, I had this fear of sharks. And then I was back in South Africa about three years ago, and a, a young guy who I used to sponsor when I had one of my companies uh, in South Africa phoned me up. He said, Sean, the surf's going to be really firing, and you know, I'd love to take you to this break you've never surfed before. It's going to be six to eight feet. And so I'm, I'm going, if I haven't surfed it before, and I'd surfed all the spots on the coast, I knew I hadn't surfed it because it didn't have shark nets. Because we'd only surf in a place that had shark nets. So these were nets that were about 350 yards out, strung parallel to the beach. Um, but they weren't strung in one long line. They were sort of, they were, they, they were like staggered. You know, one would be a further in, one would be further out. So a shark could actually swim through the gaps. But generally, once a shark swam inside, it interfered with something. And they were mostly caught on the inside swimming out. But they're very effective if it had shark nets. The chances of getting hit by a shark were very, very rare. So anyway, we wake up early in the morning, he picks me up, and we drive down this little road, and we end up at this um, at this break. And the surf is uh, cooking. When I say it's cooking, it's like six to eight feet, and it's actually perfection. My friend and I are standing, standing on the beach, and we're looking at these incredible tubes coming down the beach towards us, and they just – these like powerful cylinders, and as they're breaking upon themselves, they're shooting this compressed air out. Push, push. And you know, I've always called that uh, that compressed air the breath of God. It's like when you're inside that tube, you know, you're the 
closest closest a person can be to God. Um, and, and it's just the, it's just the most wonderful, wonderful um, experience. So we check out these uh, these great ways. You know, we strip off and we put on our wetsuits and we run down the beach. And as we're running down the beach, that African sun is just coming up through the ocean because we're on the east coast. And as it's rising, there's all this mist in the air because the water's 75 degrees, the air's about 60, and you have this this uh, steam coming off, off the water. It looks like the ocean's boiling with the sun coming up. And it was just this beautiful, sublime experience when you when I'm connected back to my homeland and connected back to, to my roots in Africa and seeing these perfect waves. So we jump in the water, we paddle out, and the water's absolutely translucent. And my mates and I, we start sharing these like great tubes together. And, you know, when you're inside that tube, it feels like time's expanded, like time has absolutely slowed down. Like you can actually, when you're surfing at your absolute best, as psychologists call it being in a state of flow, you actually feel that you can actually control the curve of that wall. It's the most amazing um, uh, sensation. And I just had these great waves, like in slow motion. felt like I was in a time machine because I felt like I was 25 years old again. So we're sharing these great waves together. So I paddle up to my mate after a couple of hours, just the two of us. And I say, what's the name of this break? You know, surfers have great names for the waves we ride, bands up, Pipeline, Sunset, Mavericks, whatever. So he says, Sean, we call it one hour. I said, why do you call it one eye? He said, we call it one eye because when the wave breaks, it looks like a human eye. Well, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, you're locked inside that tube and the wave has that sort of oval form. It's not perfectly rounded. It's oval. Well, that's pretty cool. So we surf for about another hour and then I catch my last wave in and I catch it all the way down the point. I'm about 200 yards away from my buddy and I kick out. And as I kick out, I fly through the air. I'm not trying to do an aerial or anything, but I fly through them going really fast. And I land back in the water in this translucent water and I sink down into the water. My board's really small. My board's like around 6'1". I'm 6'1". I weigh like 190. My board's about two and a half inches thick. So it's really submerged. And as I land and I look down in this translucent water, I see a black shape like heading towards me super fast. And I look to my left and I see another one. There's two of these shapes, black shapes, heading towards me like, I don't know, 20 knots super fast and I think right then man I'm going to get charred in half by two Zambezis because I've seen it happen for two sharks like hit one guy and right then as they're about to hit me they explode out the wood and I see it's two dolphins I go yes yes <laughs> I'm not going to get consumed boom and the two dolphins swim off and my, like my heart feels like it's going to jump right out of my mouth so I'm going, and this is it, man. I'm going, and I catch a little wave in. And I'm, I'm like almost shaking on the beach from, from fear and exhilaration as well, you know, not being consumed. And I'm walking up the beach, and as I walk up the beach, I'm dripping wet. My board under my arm with my wetsuit on, I walk past an old fisherman who's standing there on the beach with like a massive rod. Um, and as I walk past him, he says, you haven't been surfing out there, have you? And I go, well, duh, what's it look like? I'm dripping wet. I've got a board under my arm. I've got a wetsuit. And of course I've been serving up this. Thing. He said, do you know what we call that wave? I said, yeah, you call it one eye. He said, do you know why we call it one eye? I said, yeah, you call it one eye because the tube looks like a human eye. It has that oval form. He said, no, mate. We call it one eye because there's a 12-foot Zambezi shark that lives in the lineup. 
And when it rolls over on its side to bite people, all you can see is one eye. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I speak now. That's actually what I do. I, I do, they call them keynotes. You know, when you do talks in front of hundreds or thousands of people. Um, and I talk about, about purpose and how you can find your purpose, find your path and, and, and find your power. And within the context of that, when I talk to people, I say, I'm not giving any of you a prescription today. I'm just giving you a perspective of a life that's been lived with passion and purpose. I said, but I'm giving you a perspective. And the story I tell you about one eye, it's a story about many different things, but it's a story of perspective. You know, from my perspective, my reality is surfing this incredibly challenging, exciting, exhilarating wave and having this sublime experience with my buddy getting connected back to my homeland. And from the perspective of a fisherman, it's this terrifying place where the 12-foot Zambezi called One Eye looks, lives. And we look at the same reality from two different perspectives. And I tell people, so what I'm doing today is I'm giving you my perspective. And there's no prescription associated with this perspective. I'm not, not here to tell you what to do, just to simply give you a perspective. And that's how I like to, to start my, my talks. So people are way more receptive I'm not up there like a Tony Robbins or, a, or, a, or, or like a, one of these sort of professional dudes. I just like to tell stories to people that will emotionally arouse them, stories about courage and, and, and camaraderie and integrity and, and, and honor and, and connectivity. I tell stories, simple stories to emotionally connect people, and then I tell people Here's my code. Here's my tool that you can use as well to inspire yourself, to empower yourself, to make life, your life better, to make positive change in your life and your family's life and your business's life tomorrow. Here's a tool, and it's free. And I like to say my tool, my code, it's open source code. You can use it free. It doesn't cost you anything. You can take it to your organization, and you can change your organization in three hours by getting everyone to write the code, 12 lines. Every line begins with I will. And that's what I do, and I love it. I really love it because with many people, sometimes your life is so busy that you're so locked into the treadmill that you don't have this little bit of time for introspection. And I think when you stop, for 30 minutes, you just stop and you think about who you are. You think about what's best inside you. How can you be the best you can be? What's the best side of you? And you write your code, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. And you write poetry. And you write power. And you write passion. And this code is an incredibly powerful tool for yourself and also to connect others and tell others who you are and who you're going to be. So I love doing it. I've been doing it like, I don't know, I've been doing it since I lost my beautiful son in 2006. Yes. So that's my mission create a positive wave around the world using the code. Well, you actually have transitioned very well into the next, uh, into the next segment here. Um, so you, you, you've written a book, The Power of Our Will, The Code. Is that the correct title? Or is it The Code, Power of Our Will? Surface Code. So Surface yeah. Code was, was um, the basic principles that surfing had taught me 
about life. And it was really inspired by Surfrider Foundation. It was inspired by Glenn Henning, who started Surfrider Foundation. Um, and in 1984, when he was starting the organization, he, he said to me, Sean, you know, we'd love to have you be an ambassador for the organization to highlight what we'd be doing. I was the number one surfer in the world back then. And I said, sure, I'll be, even be on your first post. I'll get you a picture and I'll write the copy. And I wrote the copy for the first Surfrider post. It was do a good turn. And, and it was a picture of me doing a bottom turn. I've still got a copy of the poster somewhere. And that was my my connection with Surfrider. From 1984, I've been a member. I've been on the board a few times. I, lo I love the organization. So Glenn Hanning was this profound influence in Surfrider Foundation. And then when I moved to America, shortly after I moved here in 1995, he, he said, Sean, your adopted break of Rincon's having a severe environmental challenge. Um, the homeowners are connected up to septic tank systems. When it rains, the septics fill up. Crap flows, overflows and flows out into a river, flows out into the water, makes the surface sick. And I want, <clears throat> I want you to help me do something about it. He said, I'm bringing a group of, of young people to the beach and I'm bringing some, government, um, some state people, you know, some politicians, like some influencers. He said, and I, I want you to give the young people something. He said, you've got a $100 budget. Glenn Henry is just a classic dude. So, so <clears throat> give him something. So I'm going like a hundred bucks. What, what can I do with a hundred bucks? So I wrote, took out a sheet of paper, and in 30 minutes I wrote 12 lines. Every line begins with "I will." I will take the drop with commitment. I will always paddle back out. I will never turn my back on the ocean. I will honor the sport of kings. I will realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. I will catch a wave every day. Even in my mind, I'll never fight a riptide. I'll paddle around the impact zone. It was like 12 lines. Simple. And I wrote it in 30 minutes, and I made up a little plastic card and had it printed, a local printer. I even managed to misspell the word commitment. And, and I made 100 cards, and I handed them out to, to the young people that came down to the beach the following week at Rincon. And you know, the media was there, and people loved the cards, and people could see the problem, and you know, we, we, we got publicity, and ultimately, over a period of years, we solved the problem. But the cards took on a life of, of their own. They, they, they just kept going. People wanted them. I printed more. And my wife, Carla, and I had started a company called Solitude, and we made lots of clothes. And we just put the cards in our board shorts and our shirts. So this code, this little card, 12 lines, 105 words, every line beginning with our will, sort of started to go out into the community. And people liked it, and people would phone me up, hey, Sean, come and talk at our group. You know, come and talk at our church. Come and talk at our religious group. Come and talk at our synagogue. Come and talk at our lawyer's group. And, and a guy phoned me up. He said, hey, Sean, I'd love you to come and talk at a leadership conference about the code, about integrity, about honor. I went, okay. He said, let me tell you, it's a big conference. Eh? It's 2,000 people. I went, well, that's a bit scary. He said, you're going to be the opening speaker after you. He's going to be Malcolm Gladwell. And after him, going to be Richard Branson. So you better be on your game. <laughs> so that was like the first big conference I did, and I loved it. And people liked the message. And ultimately, out of that came my first book that I collaborated with a great guy uh, called Patrick Moser. And, and it was called Surface Code, 12 chapters. Every chapter was a, a deeper exploration of, like, why did I write, I'll take the drop with commitment, or I'll never fight a riptide. 
or I'll always paddle back out. So it was like stories built around those 12 metaphors. And then, I mean, this is, you know, this is classic how life works. You can't sometimes, when you give something away for nothing, when you just do a good turn, you never know where life will take you. You never know where the wave will go, I promise you. The more times that we can do something good for nothing, the better our lives will be. It's amazing. So now I'm sitting out at Rincon. We've solved the environmental problem. And a guy paddles up to me. He says, hey, Sean, my name's Gordon Sichi. I'm a headmaster at a local school. The school's called Anna Kappa. We only have 80 students, a high school. We're in a little farmhouse. He said, you want to come and talk to our students about service code? I said, sure. The book had, had just been released. So I go down to the school. I take my book down there. And I'm talking to the kids about service code. And, and then while I'm speaking to them, I have a bit of a brainwave. <clears throat> I go, service code is my code. 12 lines, 105 words. I wrote it in 30 minutes. What about your code? What about each of you, 80 of you, writing your own code? 12 lines. Every line begins with, I will write it in 30 minutes. And send it to me. So um, about a week later, I get the codes back from the kids, about a thousand lines of code, you know, 80 students, 12 lines, 960 lines. And the very first line I get back is from a young girl, Elena Alcera. She was 13 years old. I will be myself. I'll be myself. I will be myself. When I read that, man, I cried. You know, I had lost my beautiful son a few months before to a bad choice, to a game called the choking game that he'd learned from some kid at his school, and perhaps it was peer pressure. We'll never know, but my, my son tried the game, played a game. It was a stupid game. They played with their school ties. All the kids at their school used to wear school ties, and um, this little game killed my beautiful son. And when this young girl wrote, I'll be myself, it just touched me at a deeply emotional level. And I thought, wow, this young girl's putting a flag into the sand and saying that no matter what someone wants her to do, she's going to be herself. And I thought, wow, it's so inspiring. And then I read all the other amazing lines that these young students wrote. I will have faith. I'll pray. I'll face my fears. I thought, wow, this is such brilliant poetry and passion and power, I'm going to write another book. So based on the codes from the kids, I picked 12, and I read another book, and I called it The Code, The Power of Our Will. And this book was written for teens to give them a framework to motivate positive choices. So they know that when they're trying to make a choice in their life, when they're trying to find their path, they're trying to find their purpose, the code can give you power to make good decisions. So it became very popular. I was so stoked, you know, if you, and I wrote the book with Patrick again over summer. You know, when you, when you write a book as an author, you know, you're hoping people will read it because you, know, you put a lot of time into it and thought into it. And, and for a brief moment there, it was number one on Amazon in the teen section, it was so cool. And, and you know, I, I was stoked that it, that it got out there into the community and now you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people know about the code and, Kids use the code to help them be better. And, and, and it's just so satisfying for me to know that, like, where did it start? 
It started Sifrata Foundation, Do a Good Turn. That's where it started. And it just rolled from there. Wow. Um, the, the, the message of the code, and I've, I've heard you uh, do your talk in an intimate audience, um, I believe, in Laguna Beach uh, a couple years ago. But um, so no matter what age, what ethnicity, the wealth you have or don't have, school, children, corporations, it translates. Because the way the way you adapted the program from from your original surfers code to encouraging people to write their own twelve pieces of the code, um, and that that's that's ended up being to where you, you you've gone to some pretty heavy hitters and, and done this. I mean, lots of huge companies have heard the philosophy. You know, we've done academic academic testing of it. We're working with Claremont Graduate University. I'm now working with the Rotterdam School of Management as well. It's the number one business school in Europe. I just came back from doing a leadership summit there, um, you know, for 600 people. And I work, you know, these amazing organizations. There's a great organization called Young Presidents Organization. These are entrepreneurs who own companies uh, with revenues in excess of 20 million bucks. I do a lot of work with them. And it's... I like to think that, yes, I wrote Surface Code, but the code is not my code. The code is everyone's code. They just write their own code. I'm just, I've just found this little tool that's open source code that everyone can write. And when you write down your mission, when you write down your path, it helps you find the power to, to have a better life. And, you know, we all have struggles in our life. I mean... I've I've had great success. I've had I've had struggles, and that's what life is. It's success and struggle. It's success and failure. But that moment when you just stop and you think about the best part of yourself and how you can be that best part of yourself. I will be a better dad, or I'll be a better husband, or I'll be a better wife, or I'll be a better team player, or I will have faith, or I will pray, or I will do what I say I'll do, or whatever the codes is. Everyone, I mean, I've read hundreds of thousands of these, and every time people do this process in a team setting, when you have a team together of 30 or 40 or 50 people, however many there are, and everyone writes their code together, and one at a time they stand up and they read their code, their 12 lines, everyone becomes transformed into the best version of themselves. They become Nelson Mandela. They become JFK. They become Barack Obama. They become Martin Luther King. They become Mahatma Gandhi. They become Golden Maia. They become, they all become these amazing leaders. They stand there and they read their code to everyone else. And it, it just encourages and engages everyone at a deeply emotional level. And it also creates this wave of positivity and this wave of hope. I will, because everyone knows that the future, the future is unwritten, but now you write it down and you can make it uh, happen. So there's all been all sorts of academic studies about, about goal setting, how it improves motivation, how it increases probability of success. So this is not goal setting. This is purpose setting. 
you are setting your purpose. And when you set your purpose, you will, you will improve your life. Purpose-led businesses perform 42% better than businesses that aren't purpose-led and purpose-driven. So purpose today is a fundamental, important business concept. And businesses read that businesses involved with purpose and businesses involved with empowerment and businesses involved with um, employee enrichment and businesses that have a higher calling perform better and are businesses that people would more willingly be associated with. They want to be associated with businesses that are not just about profit, sales, and growth, but they're about purpose too. How can I get you to come to my wife's school and talk? <laughs> um, I, I'm actually, I would like you to do, uh, if you can, Get, how can people contact you to, to do this? this, this oh, uh, people contact me. I just My email is Sean Thompson. A-U-N-T-O-M-S-O-N, Sean Thompson at yahoo.com. You can just go onto my website, and there's a direct link to, to an email. Yes, I, I welcome it. And, and, you know, it's like I speak to about 100,000 students a year. So, I mean, I, I do a lot of pro bono stuff for students. I love to do it. I love to work with organizations because obviously organizations uh, is how I make my income and um, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun. But like a lot of times, organizations or schools will just do this themselves. They'll, they'll, I can send them like a, well, here's a talk, play to your student, half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour, and then get everyone to write the code and share the code. The code, yes, it has great power in an individual setting, but it has awesome power in a group setting because it's a way that we can all engage with each other in the best possible way because the code shows us our best possible selves and we reveal what's best about humanity. And when you reveal this goodness, it automatically creates this ripple that ultimately turns into a positive wave. And yes, what I'm talking about may be perceived as kumbaya, but it's not. What I talk about has a firm basis in scientific fact, scientific studies. Drop a stone, create a ripple, build a wave. Drop a stone, create a ripple, build a wave. Thank you so much, Sean. Um, I, I for the final part, uh, we're maybe you have a few more minutes because we're going to run over just a little bit of the hour. But um, I want to bring this back to the uh, to the beach in the ocean and the healing power of the ocean. Um, you've talked, you've mentioned your your, your son that, that passed away uh, multiple times. Um, his name was Matthew Thompson. Um, can my my favorite story that I've ever heard you tell was the sacred circle story. Uh, the sacred, the, the sacred circle, the sacred story uh, circle. Yeah. Yeah. Sacred story circle. And, and it's probably because my boys and, and I, well, especially one of my ch children, um, sometimes we, we have a hard time communicating, but we're on the beach. Um, they just, 
they light up. It's just, it's just, you know, four or five hours on the beach, six hours, sometimes seven hours, you know, all day. Um, they, they let down their guards and it's just like just having fun and, and exploring and, and, um, and, and loving the outdoors and, and what the, what the ocean and beach has to offer. And, and that story to me, um, I, there's, I have a personal connection with it, I guess. I, I just, I, I love it. And, um, I would like you to, 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 to tell that story, but at, at the same time, uh, I'd like you to think about the, the questions. I mean, I know after the passing of your son, you, you said that you had a hard time uh, getting back in the water and paddling out. And I, I can only imagine, I, can, I can't even imagine losing one of my children. But uh, what, what, got, what got you back into the ocean and, 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 and did did getting back and paddling back out and surfing, did that, did that help you spiritually and emotionally um, start the healing process with your, with the loss of your son? Yes, surfing and, and salt water, it's a, it's a wonderful healer. And there's many amazing groups that use surfing as a vehicle to help kids, whether they might have MS or they might have autism, in the vastness of the of the ocean, I think people learn humility, and they learn this sort of flow of life. That bobbing gently uh, on the water, you know, surrounded by those sort of energy bands, surrounded by those waves, it's just transformative for people. So I've spent more time in the water than most people on Earth, um, you know, catching waves, catching waves. But sometimes. The best times happen on this, that little strip between the land and the water, the beach. You know, that's such a special, magical, magical time. And yet, yes, I've had incredibly magical times on, on that beach. But, you know, when I lost my, my beautiful son, and it was just absolute horror, devastation, you know, there's no real words that can describe when you lose a child. It's just desolation and, and you know you have to re-examine your faith and like how, how can God do this to me I was a, I try to be a good person and, and why is why is life so unjust and why why is God so unfair um, but the first step in healing is this acceptance this what is not what if except what is not what if because you know, what if opens yourself to blaming yourself or blaming others. And you can't do that. You have to be forgiving of yourself. You have to be forgiving of, of others. And you have to just accept that re reality of the situation. But still, it's like you, you just cut. You know, you cut deeply. I was in Rotterdam two weeks ago. I was telling you, speaking at the Rotterdam School of Management. And right in the center of Rotterdam, Rotterdam was very heavily bombed in the Second World War. Half of the city was destroyed by the Nazis. And they rebuilt the city and they've got this amazing statue of this figure looking up to the sky and there's this huge fissure in the middle of this magnificent powerful statue's chest where he's just lost a piece of himself and that's what losing a child is like you just lose this piece of yourself so while mentally you can say yes I have to be accepting I have to accept this dreadful reality that I'll never be able to hold and kiss my son again. 
um, you have to find the stoke again because the stoke gets swept away. You, you know that drive that all surfers have to like wake up early, paddle out in the morning before the sun has even come up. You know that drive, it was gone. I had, I had no nothing. I, surfing was gone for me, it was gone. And then a friend kept phoning me up, one of my old school buddies, saying, hey, Sean, I want to take you surfing. Sean, I want to, no, I have no interest. I got no desire. So he just kept going and kept going. So after, I don't know, a couple of months, he said, I'm going to take you surfing. So I said, okay. So I'm going to take you to break you've never surfed. I went, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so we wake up early in the morning and he takes me to this break and we walk down these long steps. Uh... And we paddle out, and it's a magnificent day. This is about three to four feet, just myself and my, my buddy. And I'm paddling out, man, I'm crying. I, I just, I'm devastated. But as I push through that first wave, and the wave hits me in the face, it just like washes, washes my tears away. And it's such a, it's a metaphor, yes, but that literal moment when the ocean like washes the tears away was profound to me, not because it's a cool metaphor, but it was profound because this is what the ocean was doing. It was like washing tears away. And yes, I kept crying, but they just mixed in with the salt water. And it was like, I just paddled out and sat there. And the sun was coming up and it was beautiful. It was magnificent. The waves were perfect. And, and I could feel my beautiful son. My, my son's name was Matthew, means gift from God. And I could feel him with me. And then I swung around and caught that wave. And uh, just felt a bit better. And I paddled back out and I caught another wave. And I started feeling better. And the ocean started healing me. It certainly did, because I was busted and broken. And the ocean healed me. And then I, I paddled up to my buddy. And just like it, one hour, I asked the guy, you know, what's the name of the wave? He said, Graham, what's the name of this wave? He said, Sean, it's called Sunrise. I went, wow. And I felt like my son was talking to me because sunrise is such a metaphor for the next day, for the new day. Um, and it helped me so much. And that was sort of first step, perhaps, for me to get back on the path of healing and to find, uh, to find a new way. Because after that, my life was different. And I found a new path. And I found a new purpose um, for my life. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Uh, the, so with all we've talked about from the beginning of your history to in, in along the coast and surfing and, and, and to the, the impact and, and meaning, meaningfulness it has in your life, um, do you have uh, like a final message about the importance of preserving and protecting this, this this sacred area where the ocean meets the land? I mean, I mean, I know you do, but I like to hear it from you um, as far as is what it means to to preserve these places for people to enjoy, to to love, to lose, and to to heal there. Um, why is it so important? for us to, to, to preserve these areas? Well, this morning I went for a surf. The surf was like two to three feet. Perfect, you know. Just a few, like five guys out there, my local were breaking, you know, just sat out there, bobbing around. 
And when you surf in Santa Barbara and you look south, which is the way the coastline flows here, it's the only area in California where it doesn't go north-south, but it goes east-west. So you look south, and you look south out towards the Channel Islands. We have a group of six islands here. And in between the shore and the Channel Islands are 24 oil derricks. Now, 1969, Platform A blew out. And it was the single biggest oil disaster at the time in U.S. history. Hundreds of thousands of gallons spewed out along the coastline here, killing birds, sea animals, spoiling the coastline. And that was the birth of the environmental movement in the United States. That's my dog, Buddy. So the platform A blowout, 1969. Out of that, the EPA was created, the Clean Water Act was created. But it came from people, concerned people, that love surfing, love the coastline, fishermen, um, swimmers, boaters, people that just love the coastline and have an interest in keeping this place pure. And everyone got together and they made legislation and they changed the trajectory of business in this country. But still, the coast needs to be protected because it's under constant assault. This current administration is so business-driven, it does not have the environmental ethos. And even though the Clean Water Act was ultimately, and the EPA was started by a Republican, the current administration has turned their back on that aspect of the Republican Party. The Republican Party started environmentalism. How about that? Here in, in the United States, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, know that if you. You wouldn't know that Richard Nixon was the guy. I mean, that is like so contrary to to what one would think. But it needs to be protected. We need to save it. This is a place of healing. This is a place of solace. This is a place of love. This is a place of incredibly sublime experience. Uh, this is a place that we need for our food. This is such a, spe a special place, and we need, we need to protect it. When we go out there and we catch those incredible waves and the ocean gives and we paddle back out again, the ocean gives and we take, and the ocean gives and we take, we've all got to give back. We've all got to give back. It's our ultimate responsibility, not just as surfers, but as humans. We need to give back. We need to be ocean warriors. And one of the greatest organizations that doing that is the Surfrider Foundation, which Sean and I are both heavily involved in. Um, so, I'd like to have you come back to the board, Sean. Yeah, join Surfriders. Uh, like, uh, Surfrider does amazing work. 60,000 volunteer activists around the country that rally together whenever there's an environmental issue you know, to protect, preserve uh, the world's waves, oceans, and beaches. So, you know, Send in the 25 bucks, join Surfrider, make that voice bigger, make that voice louder, make that voice more strident, make Surfrider more powerful. Sean, I can't thank you enough for this interview. Um, it's been awesome, um, and it's flowed <laughs> amazingly well. Um, 
I can't wait. I can't wait to see you again. Uh, should be up in your area uh, in a couple months. But uh, enjoy, enjoy what you're doing, and keep doing what you're doing, man. Because uh, there's there's a lot of people out there, you know, thousands, thousands, and thousands of people you've touched. And uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate your time. Good job. Good job. Take care. Eh? All right. Thank you so much, Sean.